Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of women over 70 aging reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com. Invite us to conduct workshops or speak to your organization on issues that matter to women aging and consider becoming a sponsor. And if you're an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're really happy to welcome Pauline Kaufman, age 82. Now during 1959-1960, Pauline spent her college year abroad in Beirut, Lebanon, and that experience set her course as an advocate for peace and justice in the Middle East. Pauline's formal education, master's degrees in Christian education and in counseling, and an EDD in adult and continuing education, positioned her to lead several college programs for adult learners. While serving as Dean of Student Life at McCormick Theological Seminary in the early 1980s, Pauline connected with the Middle East Task Force of Chicago Presbytery. Since then, her advocacy for human rights has involved extensive travel to five Middle Eastern countries. Currently, Pauline works with interfaith organizations committed to justice for Israelis and Palestinians, where she integrates her expertise in ministry and mediation with principles and practices of adult learning. Pauline's husband of many decades passed away in 2016. She now lives in a vintage condo in the historic district of Oak Park, Illinois. So welcome, Pauline. We're delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Catherine. It's good to be here. Thank you. So Pauline, you know, your involvement in what I under kind of think of as justice ministry began when you were quite young. And could you just give us a brief glimpse into your early beginnings as a social activist? Sure. I grew up on a farm in West Central Minnesota, and I was very active in the local church. Our whole family was and encouraged to participate in Westminster Fellowship, which was the Presbyterian form of youth ministry back then. They sponsored a number of mission trips, and I ended up doing a couple of them, which set me on that course. Then when I went to college to the University of Minnesota, I started as a music major, but the campus minister there encouraged me to do the trip to Beirut for my junior year, which I did. She helped me raise the money to go, made it all possible. And the year itself was just a a mind-blowing experience. Um, I came back totally amazed at what I had done and the people I had met and wondering what in the world would I do with it. I remember taking a course my senior year when I finished at the University of Minnesota in humanities and my teacher was the poet John Berriman. One of our assignments was to write a paper on an issue that we cared about so naturally. I wrote a diatribe about the Palestinian side of things. Um, I thought that was the Middle East issue and turned it in. And when I got it back, John Berriman gave me an A and there was one brief comment at the bottom. He says, excellent paper on one side of the story, (laughs) which was a 
oops moment when I wasn't sure where he was coming from and I had not bothered to find out. So uh, it was another learning experience for me. I went on to McCormick Seminary in Chicago, leaving Minnesota. And uh, while at McCormick, but it's a t I was in a two-year program at first in Christian education. So I had the summer to do an internship and I ended up doing it with the California Migrant Ministry, it was mm -hmm. called then. That happened to be, well, it was 1962, and that was the beginning of Cesar Chavez's uh, work at leading the California Farm Worker Union Organizing mm -hmm. Drive. And our group of volunteers working with migrants that year, as we called them, I remember we had a weekend camp out in Yellowstone Park and Cesar Chavez came to be with mm -hmm. us. We sat around the campfire one night. I, I look back on this now thinking, oh my God, there I was with Cesar Chavez in 1962. And he talked about the experience of uh, Mexican men, largely, coming to California to pick the crops and so on, what their housing was like, what their conditions of work were, and all of that, and I soaked it up and wrote letters home to my parents, my father being, of course, a farmer in Minnesota. And here I was representing a worker point of view. Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad calling me one day to, to caution me, he says, remember, your, your uncle is a, a, the national president of the American Farm Bureau, which was a very conservative organization. And uh, he did not like what I was writing about. So that was another learning experience. Um, but it taught me a lot about what happens when you buck the prevailing worldview. Um, mm. And so then I came back to McCormick and uh, um, long story short, Rob and I decided to get married. He was from Texas. So we went off to serve, save Texas, we like to say, mm -hmm. uh, serving two different church locations. The second one for nine years in the, the uh, south part of Dallas called Singing Hills, mm -hmm. which was redlined. And we didn't realize it at, when we went there, but we knew the neighborhood was changing. And we had a ministry where most of the white members of the church moved away. The Presbytery set up a special program to encourage some families in uh, Dallas to stay with our church and help us have an integrated church experience, which was quite an event in the late 60s and early mm -hmm. 70s. That was prime time for civil rights, um, which was probably the most um, wonderful time to be involved in ministry in the church. Um, and we felt like we were really making a difference and that things mattered there. Mm -hmm. When we real, what ministers, however, need to move on periodically. And so Rob responded to a call from a church in Baltimore and we moved there, another neighborhood going through racial change. And so we were there long enough for me to get a job at Johns Hopkins um, and enroll in the Masters in Guidance and Counseling, uh, which was a benefit from working there. I didn't have to pay for it. Mm. 
that I became the Dean of Students at Peabody Conservatory, which had just affiliated with Johns Hopkins. And so that was my learning of uh, the whole world of student services. And uh, that's how we ended up moving back to Chicago, where I became the Dean of Students at McCormick Seminary. So it was a return back to our uh, where we met, really, except that the campus had moved by then from the north side, Fullerton and Halstead, down to Hyde Park to be closer to a consortium of seminaries. Um, and so that's where I... Um, while I was there, I enrolled in the doctoral program at Northern Illinois in adult and continuing education. And uh, that led me then on to uh, North Park University, where I was in charge of the adult learning program. Um, and that's where I know you from, because we were both involved in programs for adult learners. One of my big regrets, Pauline, is that I didn't know this whole history, your whole history because um, we were so focused on the, the adult learning part. But that's what I needed right then. I needed that organization, the Alliance for uh, Higher Education. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful group for me. Um, I, I, I've thought about this a lot, but as a farm girl growing up in Minnesota, I sort of always had this feeling that I was on the outside looking in, you know, mm -hmm. and that when I went to school, I was there with, what I called the town kids. I was one of the farm kids. They were the town kids and the town kids set the agenda for social events and everything. So that has followed me throughout my life. I was always have always felt, I think, like I'm an outsider trying to get in, mm -hmm. which is silly because I've, I've done well, I've succeeded. And uh, in fact, it was while we were at North Park that uh, one of the faculty members who represented people of color came to me one time and said, tried to point out to me how I was missing some important things because I was in such a position of privilege. <laughs> I was totally shocked. That's <laughs> yes. how she saw me. I did not see myself that way. And we had a wonderful conversation unpacking the difference um, of how we viewed that. But it was another learning experience yeah. for me. I understand. I mean, I can relate to that, too, because I uh, grew up on a farm in West Central Minnesota, went to the University of Minnesota. And I certainly I can I really relate to what you just said about feeling kind of always on the periphery, on the outside. Of course, then we, we get involved in alternative degree programs for adults. And that's also on the periphery. So exactly. Yes. Um, was, go ahead. I just it was the discussions at those alliance annual meetings and gatherings that helped me understand that we had a right to be there and that we were valid people and mm -hmm. had something that was worth sharing with uh, the rest of the world. So it was a real confidence builder for me. Great. So let's, let's uh, focus now on the really extensive experience that you have had as an advocate for peace and justice in the Middle East. And can just give us a flavor of what what um, some what experiences that stand out for you as being especially impactful uh, sure. beyond that that year you spent as uh, in Beirut. Yeah, while I was working at McCormick Seminary, several of the faculty members there were involved in the Middle East Task Force of Chicago Presbytery, 
which was my home church, the Presbyterian denomination, which had been very important in my life in many ways. So um, the other thing I need to say is that being married and in the ministry with my husband in churches in Dallas in the 60s and Baltimore in the uh, late 70s, they, those were areas, and that, that was a time when there was a lot of sympathy in the country for what was happening to the Jewish people with the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel. I remember the Six-Day War in 1967 was a, just a, greeted with great joy and celebration by our church members, even the African-American church members, or maybe especially them. They could, they could identify with what they were seeing as the underdogs. And I was extremely upset by that because here um, Israel was claiming part of Palestinian land and country, and I felt like I couldn't say anything. I was, you know, a solo voice. Um, it's hard to be by yourself when you're in an uncomfortable position of advocating what I saw was a, a justice position. It was not received that way. So when I found the Middle East Task Force and a group of people that had been on traveling seminars, we called them, um, starting in the, the um, in 1974, uh, that was a group that had been to Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, ending up in Israel-Palestine, and understood what was happening in the Middle East in a way that uh, people back home did not understand. That's why the Middle East Task Force was formed. The participants in those seminars needed a place to come together and debrief their frustration at not being able to help church members understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that was experiential learning for them. Uh, and so that phrase in my doctoral program and through the Alliance and working with adult learners became very important to me. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was influential is that when I went to work at McCormick Seminary in 1980, they were in the middle of uh, trying to use inclusive language. The feminist issue had reared its head and there was a, a women's concerns committee at McCormick and I became one, I was their advisor as the Dean of Students. Their meetings became what we called scriptoriums. We would each grab a stack of hymn books, sit down with our pen and pencil and during the meeting, we would be going through the hymns, crossing out references just to men and male and he and his, and, and writing in phrases that we thought were better, <laughs> which was greeted with just incredible confusion and upsetness when we would have worship because everybody's handwriting was different. You, and you were used to a certain set of words these were different. Sometimes you couldn't read the words. <laughs> so everybody was upset. The professors, the administrators, the students all uh, experienced first year, second year, third year, didn't matter. You know, talk about a disorienting dilemma. Oh, for you know, sure. Health educator Jack Mesereau would say. Mm -hmm. And so from that 
that's what became my dissertation and my doctoral program. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I, I came back after I had moved on to a new position in another institution. I came back and interviewed faculty, administrators, uh, staff, and students of all three levels, first year, second year, third year, about that experience and how they saw it at first and how they be became more accustomed to it and how they gradually mm -hmm. began to accept it. Mm -hmm. And so that became the subject for my dissertation. Interesting. So can you tell us, uh, I know you've, you've traveled extensively to many Middle Eastern countries um, and you were part of the traveling seminars. Just give us a, a taste of what that was like. Oh my. There, yeah, we, you know, in 25 words or less. <laughs> Um, my first trip was with uh, one of the faculty members at McCormick as group leader. And uh, so we would go back to, it was my first time back in Lebanon since uh, 1960. This was 1999, uh, almost 40 years later, which tells you how long it took me to get back into the issue in, in a meaningful way. But there we were in Beirut looking at Sabra Shatila Palestinian refugee camp, uh, which had gone through a massacre in 1982. Uh, we saw the conditions that they had to live under. Uh, Lebanon, like many other host countries for the Palestinian refugees, didn't know what to do with them. And they felt that if they allowed them to get citizenship and become citizens, that they would upset the sectarian balance that the government was based on. That's the Lebanese example. And so they were not allowed to be citizens. They couldn't go to the public schools. They couldn't go to the universities without uh, special prerogatives. And there were 70 different professions itemized that they could not work in. So they became peddlers and would set up their stalls and try to sell things and, and earn a living. And they were supported by the United Nations um, agency, UNRWA, which was set up specifically to serve Palestinian refugees. And then the other agency that the UN set up came a couple of years later that um, uh, serves all of the other refugees around the world but only UNRWA serves Palestinian refugees. And that's their lifeline in not only Lebanon, but in Syria, which is another story. Um, and in Jordan, Jordan has been more hospitable to Palestinians than most. And then of course, in Israel itself, there are refugee camps all around in both Israel, in Gaza and in uh, the West Bank, which Palestinians call it, Israel calls it Judea and Samaria. So, but just seeing all of this, uh, how people were treated differently and not included in the, uh, in basically human rights, human, the, the um, International Declaration of Human Rights was uh, passed in 1948 or 49, right after the creation of the State of Israel. And Eleanor Roosevelt was at the head of that effort. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the issues or one of the documents that we advocates still refer to as uh, when can we expect mm -hmm. the, the global 
situation to grant um, equal human rights to everybody, yeah. including Palestinians. So. so as you returned from those uh, those travels, then did you did you bring that information, those perspectives back to your uh, congregations? Yes, we did. We tried. Some congregations are easy, are more open to listening than others. And uh, it depends on who your members might be married to, um, mm. where concentrations are of a lot of uh, Jewish people. And um, I learned early on that um, a local Jewish synagogue, the rabbi was getting phone calls from a rabbi of the Chicago Federation of Rabbis to warn him about certain members. And every new minister that we got in my local church received a call from that rabbi to warn him about me. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> only one of them called me immediately to tell me that. <laughs> but I know it had been happening. I think that has stopped. But uh, uh, and, and I do think over the years, there's a gradual opening up to more built more willingness to see and hear the other side of the issue mm -hmm. but it's hard to uh, to to make that case and to feel like we're being heard adequately gail did you have a question or comment not at this point okay okay um one of the other things that i i didn't I forgot to mention i think was that um this process in the Presbyterian denomination of influencing what policies our denomination supports uh, is done through creating overtures. Some churches call it resolutions. Mm -hmm. but in our church, the uh, overture starts at, with a local group and you have to get your local church governing body, the council or the session to approve of it. And then it gets sent on to the presbytery. The presbytery debates it if they approve of it, it gets sent on to our General Assembly, which is the national annual meeting. Mm. And so we've done a number of those overtures over the years and have um, had a major influence, I think, on how the Presbyterian denomination uh, responds on issues concerning Israel, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, um, and other countries in what I call the Middle East. So. In, in 2004, I took an overture to, I was followed it all the way through and became the advocate at the General Assembly. Oh. And it was an overture that opposed the doctrine of Christian Zionism, mm -hmm. which is a major um, belief system in the evangelical churches in this country. They're very much tied in with APAC, the um, national organization that is served by evangelicals that supports Israel and Israeli government um, operations. They're, but they're based on belief systems in Christian Zionism, which hold that, um, uh, that Jesus will return when the temple is rebuilt and certain yes. other signs have happened. Oh, and that, wow. you know, you, it, I, that's a very brief summary of Christian Zionism, but it's, it's weird and it's not supported by the Bible, even though they say it is. So anyway, the Presbyterians rejected that belief system at a time that uh, 
I think people didn't know anything about it and it sort of was adopted by the denomination um, because nobody thought much about it. And it just sort of <laughs> disappeared. Uh, at the same time, we formed the national organization called the Israel-Palestine Network. And I became, I was active on the steering committee of that organization. And I still am, I'm a co-moderator right now. And that group sponsored an overture that made the rounds um, calling for divestment. Perhaps you remember mm -hmm. that whole issue. It took us 10 years to get it passed, mm. but the overture called on the church to look at where its money is invested. Mm. And if it's invested in corporations that are profiting from issues that relate to the occupation of the West Bank, then we should meet with that corporation try to get them to see that it's an unjust uh, policy and to get them to change their ways. And if they don't are unwilling to do that, then we called for our denomination to withdraw their money from those funds. And that's the divestment overture. Was Has very, that actually happened? It finally did in 2014. We started in 2004 and we went back, then we started having every uh, general assemblies every two years. Mm -hmm. And so a group of about 60 to 80 Presbyterians from all over the uh, United States would pay their own way to come to the meeting and lobby, advocate for that overture. And we failed every time until 2014. And in 2014, we were meeting in Pittsburgh of all places and it passed by seven votes. Wow. And, wow. and that, that one of our members was on the front page of the New York Times <laughs> with a, just an incredulous look on his face. <laughs> which we were all amazed. But that was our major effort. And then a lot of other denominations started forming Palestine-Israel network groups. Mm -hmm. We call them in groups. And um, so we work now with Jewish Voice for Peace, American Muslims for Palestine. There's a, a group of um, uh, Presbyterian uh, Palestinians in America that work together in PCAP. And uh, so we're, uh, there's a, several coalitions that work on these issues. And we're gradually, I think, making some headway. So our disorienting dilemmas are happening right and left. <laughs> My goodness. Um. <laughs> A book I read a number of years ago called Common Fire, how yes. to sustain change, how to sustain as, a, as an activist, how to sustain yourself over long periods of time. And you, you, you are really a powerful example of somebody who just stays, stays with it and keeps working and expands your networks. And it's, are you, um, so you're 82 years old, Pauline. Does that make any difference? Um, I get I get very tired, and mm -hmm. I need a couple of days off to recuperate and not think about the Middle East or anything. Mm -hmm. But then, it what regenerates me are uh, meetings with colleagues that are working on the same issues. Uh, we support each other, and mm -hmm. that's that's my community. Um, so I think that's how I do it. But this aging business is uh, interferes as you know, <laughs> things happen, 
and uh, you have to deal with them and uh, hope that you can keep going. Right. Did I, did I read somewhere, Pauline, that you play the tromb trombone? I, I do. When I was growing up, my uh, I had five brothers and sisters. There were six of us on the farm. My mother loved, she was our church piano player. We didn't have an organ. It was a small rural congregation. And she wanted us to have a family band. So everybody in the, our family played an instrument and I got the trombone. Oh. <laughs> and since then, my son, Tim, is a professional jazz trombonist in Chicago. Mm. Okay. And then his son, Dan, is a professional trombone player who managed to win an audition at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, which oh. is a professional job. So he, he works yeah. nine to five, Monday through Friday, which is unheard of for me. <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> Amazing. So just before we close, Pauline, I know that you were married for many, many years. You and Rob were married for many, many years. And he passed away in 2016. And so how have you been adapting to, to that um, major life change? Well, it's hard. I still think about him every day, all day, mm -hmm. um, and miss him. Um, but life goes on, and I have close friends in uh, my community and in my church um, and in the Israel-Palestine group of advocates, mm -hmm. uh, and we meet frequently. Um, so I, I keep thinking I should really resign from some of these positions and, and get rid of some more stuff. I sold the house and moved to a condo, which was getting rid of about half of our stuff. Mm -hmm. but the longer I live here, the more I see I need to get rid of a whole lot more. Uh -huh. And I'm just going to have to bite the bullet and get out of some of these voluntary positions and focus on doing that. But it seems like a waste of time at this point. <laughs> I understand 100%. <laughs> sure you do. <laughs> yes. Well, Pauline, thank you so much for talking with us today. This has been very, very educational and interesting. And just appreciate the energy and commitment that you bring to your advocacy work. Thank you so much for wanting to interview me. It's a huge boost to my morale. And oh, it's really good to talk good. with you again, Catherine. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. And uh, listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Facebook group. Visit our website, womenover70.com and discover everything you'd like to know about our Women Over 70 community. Check out our new Aging Reimagined Circle. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined.